0: welcome back guys to another episode of the health mastery show this is episode number 23 with dr jose antonio jose is the ceo and co-founder of the international society of sports nutrition the issn and an associate professor and director of the exercise and sports science program at nova southeastern university in south florida you may have learned of some of jose's work before indirectly maybe you didn't know about it but some of the things like jeff nippard puts out and others that make youtube content other informational content on instagram etc they often cite jose's work and kind of explain and break down a little bit more so jose is a primary researcher he's in the lab doing the the experiments to get these results that we've learned about so today's topic is all about protein i really enjoyed this conversation i love talking to jose and before we get into the show i want to talk about my my new website healthmastery.co.co there you can learn about my coaching services also read some of the blogs that i've written which i'll also be using to update and add more feed more blogs in the future and finally i want to talk about my 10-day natural bodybuilding prep fast track it's a 10-day free course that i'll be delivering live to people who want to learn about natural bodybuilding competition prep i'll be going over the things that i've learned from competing since 2013 all the way up to my last shows in 2019 so you can find the link to that and some more information about that in the description in this episode and if you have any questions as usual please do reach out to myself but without further ado let's get into this podcast with jose antonio so jose thanks so much for coming on today
1: hey you're welcome i look forward to this and uh i guess you're on the other side of, of the uh the pond i guess as they say yeah
0: i'm uh, dublin Ar- ireland i believe you're oh, in florida right
1: yeah wow well, i've been to dublin a couple of times yeah i'm in south florida near miami so uh yeah. things are i mean it's always summer here so i've been outside yeah. all day pretty much
0: <laughs> yeah i live right in the city center or, or about a kilometer away 20 20 minutes walking and i'm looking at the window here and it's just Gray, overcast, uh, pretty cold. Like you need a jacket. That's pretty normal over here, though.
1: Yeah. Well, i when I went there, it was in the summer, and it was the coldest summer I've ever
0: like experienced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I'd imagine so. But but again, thank thanks so much for coming on. I um, I've been a big fan of your work, especially um looking into some of your research in the past. And I know it's been cited by many of the people that have been on here, and a lot of people that I would respect, and a lot of people that. Um, listeners of the show would have known that that started your work. So, um, if, for those who don't know who you are, would you mind giving a little bit of background into uh, what you do, what you've done, and uh, and all about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure, and not, not a problem at all. Um, first, thanks for having me on the, on the on the podcast. I uh, I actually got my PhD in uh, in a, the field of skeletal muscle physiology. My interests originally stemmed from uh skeletal muscle hypertrophy. I did some uh, initially some animal work looking at. Uh, what regulated muscle hypertrophy and and muscle fiber hyperplasia. After I finished my PhD, I did a postdoc in metabolism, looking at how the androgen receptor was regulated by androgens, by, you know, testosterone. And then after that, I've actually spent really most of my career in the sports nutrition field, looking at protein, creatine, uh, you name it. I've looked at a lot of the the more popular supplements. And now I am... uh, uh, doing a little bit more, not just sports nutrition, but sports neuroscience, looking the, at the connection between exercise and brain function. And I do that mostly. I do my research at the uh, at a university in South Florida called Nova Southeastern University. It's in Davie, Florida. It's a beautiful campus. Um, and also I am the CEO and one of the co-founders of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. And, and if you want to come to a beautiful beach, Adam, I would highly recommend you come hmm. to our conference. It's September 10th to 12th. It is on Daytona, it is in Daytona Beach, Florida, one of the world's most famous beaches. Uh, it's a beautiful venue, and you'll learn all the latest in sports nutrition, sports science, and we even dabble a bit in strength and conditioning. There are there are speakers who who are professional strength and conditioning coaches for you know either collegiate teams or professional sports teams.
0: Nice. No, it it sounds like you're really living the life. You're, you're living. <laughs> yes. In nice weather. You're you've got your own company you, that you've you co-founded, and you're you're researching what you love. That's pretty awesome oh yeah and uh
1: i, I live a charmed life
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so th- thanks so much for giving us some insight into that so um today we wanted to particularly talk about protein so um a couple different questions around protein and as a practical application of, about that so most like i mentioned to you off air most of the people listening to this podcast are interested in building as much muscle as possible trying to lose as much fat as possible just to be as big and lean as jacked as possible so first question that i have for you is would you mind give us some insight into what's the importance of muscle protein synthesis, muscle protein breakdown in the context of building muscle or hypertrophy? And do we want to minimize breakdown or is some breakdown important? And do we just want to maximize muscle protein synthesis all of the time?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think um, it's sort of backtrack looking at those studies. So uh, there are now, I mean, we've got numerous studies looking at the acute um, MPS or muscle protein synthetic rate. Uh, post-workout uh, as well as post-workout plus the addition of essential amino acids or whole protein. And in general, it, you know, it, it, there seems to be sort of this dose-sealing effect where anything beyond 40 grams at a single sitting, you get barely an increase, uh, a, a, an additional increase in muscle protein synthesis. Now, now, th- in general, I think, uh, I think that's interesting because it, gives, it provides a mechanistic explanation of why protein is important. But I also want to mention that the limitations to looking at acute data would be, would be something like, um, and I'm going to give a baseball analogy. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but some people who are, they might understand this there. You know, there are nine innings in baseball, and if you watch the first inning and or second inning of baseball... Watch the pitcher. You're like, wow, pitcher's throwing great, throwing strikes. You know, guys are striking out. Predicting what happens in a baseball game based on the first inning is like what I see with these acute MPS data, muscle protein synthetic data. At the end of the day, it tells you, it, it, I call it, it, it gives you a snapshot. It gives you a picture. But we don't need a picture. We need a movie. And so what's the movie? The movie is looking at 4, 8, 12 weeks of training, plus supplementation or six months, which would be horribly difficult to do. So it, it doesn't really it doesn't answer specifically your question, although I think mechanistically you focus on muscle protein synthesis, not necessarily inhibiting breakdown because you wanna have that turnover. I mean, you gotta replace old proteins with new proteins, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think there are severe limitations with just focusing on this acute data where you're literally measuring things for hours and then people are trying to make these predictions about what will happen for eight, 12 weeks later, or half a year later. And it, it, you just can't do that. It doesn't make sense. Um, what happens is, you know, at the end of the day, you have to do what I call time course studies, meaning you gotta get trained guys or girls feed them protein and monitor them over weeks and weeks and weeks and see what happens. And this is where I think the acute data is interesting, but, Again, it's, it doesn't tell you, it, it gives you barely a picture. It's just, it's a snapshot. And, and that's why I think this emphasis on MPS, MPS, muscle protein synthesis seems really odd because like I said before, it's like focusing on the first inning of a baseball game. It, it tells you a little bit, but it doesn't really tell you that much.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, uh, I, I haven't ever designed or done a study, but I know that. Um, one of the limitations is, especially with people who are, say, more advanced in lift, with with lifting or whatever, they're lifting a while and have built an appreciable amount of muscle, is that over four weeks or even over eight weeks, you're not going to necessarily be able to see huge differences between groups. It might be a, a year <laughs> before you actually yes. start to see a yes. decent amount of muscle.
1: Exactly. And and in fact, um, you know, because I've done a lot of these high-protein diet studies with what are basically trained uh, male, mostly male, male bodybuilders, recreational bodybuilders, and you and I know it is ungodly hard to put on, you know, a kilo of, of muscle mass. It's just hard, you know. So, so these guys, they they work their, their weight, they work their butts off in the gym, and they eat not only just a lot of calories, but they eat consume a lot of protein. And and even with that, it's still difficult unless unless these guys go on the juice. And if you're on the juice, then clearly you're you're going to put on lean mass much more easily. But um, but yeah, it is just insanely difficult. And you know what it. <laughs> In a way, it makes sense. I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, it it doesn't make sense that the human body wants to put on a ton of muscle, you know, that easily because you'd have to carry that. Imagine this, you know, back in caveman days, all of a sudden humans should just put on muscle. You'd have to carry that muscle and it wouldn't necessarily provide a survival advantage when at the end of the day, humans are endurance animals and for humans to kill an animal to eat it. It's gotta out endurance it because humans can't outrun it, they can't outspeed it, they can't out muscle it, they gotta out-endurance it. So um, from an evolution standpoint, it, it makes sense that it's crazy difficult to gain lean mass.
0: Yeah, so if if we're not focusing or we shouldn't be focusing on MPS, because I know that a lot of the research was would compare and I think that the research that you're mentioned there with the forty grams of protein that maximizes muscle protein synthesis i think you compared 20 grams if i'm not wrong correct um so if we don't focus on that or if we're not trying to say maximize that to say potentially maximize hypertrophy at a meal setting or, or whatever whatever we can control ourselves what should we be focusing on or or is it still something that we should focus on but it's just not necessarily the you know the 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 ultimate way to track progress
1: yeah I think I think most bodybuilders have it right where they focus on if, if the goal is just to gain wait let me backtrack later so g- gaining muscle mass is difficult if you're naturals uh, so in a sense you have to gain you have to gain some fat mass if you're going to gain muscle mass it, 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 unless you're genetically blessed there's a few guys who just gain muscle mass and but they're sort of the rare exception So in that case, there's two things that are most important, total energy intake and total protein intake. And typically if protein intake is high, energy intake is also high. So the number one factor would be sort of the combination of energy slash protein intake. So that's number one. Now, obviously you don't eat all that protein in one sitting. So the number two factor would be the timing or distribution of it. So if you spread that out every three or four hours, get a meal in. Um, that seems to be one of the strategies that would work best for promoting muscle protein, uh, muscle hypertrophy. And again, we're assuming training is on, you know, sort of dialed in. Um, so that to me is, is, is the most important thing. So get focus on total amount and then focus on timing and distribution. And I think. You know, and this sort of segues, and I don't know if you wanted to talk about this, but it segues into the, uh, you know, some people talk about the anabolic window, it's really an anabolic barn door, whatever the hell they want to call it, <laughs> when in fact, it, it, it's a bit of a straw man, and, and I see this all the time, like, you know, some scientists will say, well, you know, the anabolic window really doesn't exist, so after you work out, it, you know, it's not critical that you consume any protein post, you know, post-training, and, and that's a completely wrong way of looking at it. If the goal is total protein intake per day, why would you wait hours after training to eat? You don't, I mean, if, it's, if total still matters, get something post-workout, particularly post-workout because you're probably slightly dehydrated and hungry. It's a great, it's a great easy time to get, let's say a 40 gram bolus of protein, you know, and, and a high quality protein, maybe a milk uh, based protein. And then, you know, eat your normal meal two or three hours later. But the idea that, you know what, you work out, sit around for a couple hours, you're fine. Not if your goal is bodybuilding. And certainly, you know, um, your audience is all bodybuilders. But even for high-end performance athletes, to sit around for three hours before you eat or two hours makes no sense. you got to get something in to help your, help your body recover.
0: Yeah, and I, I, th- that makes a lot of sense. And I think I read a quote um, from Brad Schoenfeld. A while ago i can't remember exactly what it said but it was something along the lines of it's pretty easy or simple to build muscle but if you want to maximize your genetic potential that gets pretty difficult and nuanced and you need to be very specific it wasn't those exact words but that was along the lines of it so when you mentioned that the secondary thing behind total protein intake would be distribution is is the reason that distribution is somewhat important or, or secondary to total intake because we have a, an anabolic ceiling at a single sitting, so and most people don't do this, but some people probably do. We eat all your food in one meal. Um, you know, why would splitting it out to four different protein feedings in a day be uh, superior, or ever even ever so slightly superior than just eating all your your protein in one single meal? Is there an anabolic ceiling to a specific sitting of protein?
1: Yeah, there seems to be a refractory period. You know, after you consume, uh, have a protein containing meal. And it seems that you need that window of about three to four hours before you get a next meal. Now, now the interesting thing is I don't think anyone's attempted to do the study. Let's say the traditional bodybuilder, I know in the United States, a lot of them will eat like six meals a day. So that would be, that would be breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then three, what I would call meals. Although some would just call it, they're having a shake, but which technically is still a meal. So they're consuming protein six times over the course of a day. Now, Uh, what would happen if these bodybuilders just split that up into a gigantic breakfast, a gigantic dinner, and then maybe one shake post-training? Would there be a difference? (laughs) I thought about this, and and that's a study that'd be infinitely too hard to do, so it's not something I will attempt. But I wonder if there would really be that big a difference because to me, the driving force for hypertrophy is, is still mostly training and then nutrition. And and the reason I say that is one of the initial high protein diet studies we did was we had guys consume 4.4 grams per kilo over an eight week period. And they didn't change their training. These were uh, trained guys and girls. So we told them, don't change your training. The goal is just eat a lot of protein for eight weeks. That's it. And we found nothing happened, which is kind of interesting. I'm like, wow, you can eat all that protein, nothing happens. And you know, a lot of them complained about being hot and, Sweaty all the time, which makes sense. You know, you get the protein sweats because of the thermic effect of it. Um, So, we decided in the follow up study, which you're probably familiar with, is we dropped the protein intake to about 3.4 grams per kilo. Again, eight weeks, but they all followed a sort of a traditional split routine um, uh, body part training, uh, you know, traditional bodybuilding training. And in that case, at that intake, which is still high, I mean, 3.4 grams per kilo, uh, they were able to elevate lean body mass. So, What that told me is that protein itself isn't the driver. I mean, it's important, but at the end of the day, exercise is the driver specifically heavy resistance training. So, so in a way it's, there's there's sort of like two wheels of a bicycle. I mean, unless you're good at a unicycle, you need both wheels of a bicycle, you know, front wheels, uh, nutrition, the back wheel is training and that training ultimately drives the process. Um, So, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, are you better off getting a nutritionist or, or a bodybuilding coach? And and I always say, well, first start with the bodybuilding coach, <laughs> learn how to train, and then yeah. start with the nutritionist because, you know, it's, to me, the training part is what drives the nutrition part.
0: Yeah. So um, for, for those who don't, perhaps don't understand exactly what you're saying, both training and actual protein intake stimulate protein synthesis, right? Um, but, but obviously they're not, I, I don't know i don't understand the exact mechanisms but obviously they don't stimulate in the same way because um if, if there's no training stimulus you're not going to get bigger um and i assume if there's I, I don't know if it's even possible to not eat any protein whatsoever but and I, I don't understand why anybody would try and research this but if you trained but didn't eat any protein would you still actually build some muscle i'd assume perhaps you might um i'm not sure
1: Yeah, well, I think if you, uh, the first scenario where um, just eating protein doesn't do anything because we know that. The second scenario is if you eat, if you work out really hard and eat, let's say you eat a a crappy diet. Let's say you sometimes forget to eat. Sometimes you go to McDonald's. Sometimes you eat chicken. Sometimes you eat vegetables. You'll still grow. (laughs) You'll still grow. You may not grow as well, but you will still grow. So, so that alone tells you it's, it's heavy resistance training that drives all of this. For the most part, it's not the diet. Now, obviously, you know, at high level bodybuilding, diet's critically important. I don't want people to think, well, you know, Antonio doesn't think diet's important. No, diet's very important. I mean, it's critically important, but but training is more important. I mean, if you don't train, then all of this kind of is pointless, right? I mean, and in fact, um, um, one of the criticisms of my studies was, well, you know, these people are consuming, you know, high, high levels of protein. and sure it's safe for a year maybe it's even safer for, for two years but you know is it safe for five ten or twenty years and and you know my answer to that is the only people who consume this amount of protein are one usually bodybuilders bodybuilders tend to be lean tend to be healthy if they're not on if they're not on drugs then certainly they're drug free and and they tend to be among the healthiest of populations yeah. so it's not like you know the sedentary mom from walmart is eating 4.4 4 grams per kilo I mean, nobody does unless you train. So in a way, high protein intakes, you know, these people self-select that. Healthy people who train hard self-select it. So it's what, you know, I always found that argument weird. It's like, well, what if they do it for five years? Well, yeah, but these guys are training like crazy. These are not unhealthy people. So it was just really odd.
0: It's pretty funny the way people do that, just regardless of this specific thing or, or even outside of it. If they find that somebody's doing something Uh, potentially that may not be proven to be safe and i'm not saying it's not safe but they'll they'll say like you know that's not safe long term but yet they're doing other things in their life that are you know potentially add up and you got to think about the context of your overall lifestyle rather than just you know oh you eat uh you eat a packet of uh of jelly babies or something or a snickers bar once a day that's not good for you you got to think about the context right it's really interesting what you, you talked about with the um the training how that's that is more important per se than, than actual protein for stimulus. because I've got a lot of friends who are into like you know biohacking or whatever they're, they're you know trying to uh, I don't really like that term but they're trying to like do, do more with less or produce like the Pareto's principle like Tim Ferris kind of style and where you're just trying to minimize everything in every area of life to get the, the maximum output and often with training they're, they're they they do not have scientific principles or you know understanding necessarily but they're they're trying to always come up with these ideas to to do as minimum or as little as possible um and still get the same results but if you're trying to always minimize it then you like you mentioned you know that training stimulus is going to be Um, the the number one driver of hypertrophy and obviously there's a ceiling more not equal equal better but there's going to be a certain amount and you you probably have to be above that threshold in order to keep that and progressing forward
1: you know you know it's it's funny you mentioned the word biohacking and that word annoys the hell out of me i don't know why um but but this idea that there are things you can do that are in a way it's it sounds secretive it's like well you know doing the minimal minimal amount to get i guess the best result when in fact If you look at high end athletes, and if you want to throw physique athletes in there in in terms of how they train, nobody does the minimum. I mean, who the hell does the minimum? I mean, lazy people do the minimum. Um, You know, whether you're bodybuilding or training for a sport. So, this idea that there's sort of this minimalistic look at what you can do to, you know, maximize whatever goal you have just seems really weird to me. It's just bizarre. But yeah, this biohacking thing, what? How? I mean, I have asked, uh, when I ask people how they define biohacking, everyone defines it differently.
0: How do you how do you define it or how is it defined to you? Um, I don't know, that's a good thing, but when you mentioned neuroscience in the first uh in the first few sentences to me that you're you're looking at that, I immediately thought of Bradley Cooper and Limitless because I actually oh, when yeah, I was in yeah. college, <laughs> when I was in my first year of college, when I was maybe 19 or 18, I actually tried to like blend these nootropic supplements together. I don't know if you're familiar with nootropics smart drugs basically cognitive enhancers that are we're talking legal, about drugs
1: or, drugs not supplements right we're talking about drugs
0: well they're like over-the-counter synthetic they're great like if there's if they're food supplements or not because they're synthetic and they're not from plants like um is there's like called racetams and things like that paracetam. Right. um yeah so uh, yeah they're, they're sold by onnit and some of them kind of joe rogan's company but but i thought i was trying to develop this like limitless thing to, to biohack your your brain to study or whatever but um yeah i, I from some friends who work in uh uh in neuroscience and, and and flow and research like that and they they use that term a lot it seems pretty trendy in the states not so much in europe but especially west coast america everybody out there wants to biohack whatever that means um <laughs> But, I guess it means whatever
1: you want it to mean
0: when people ask. They're yeah. like,
1: what's biohacking? Well, I'm, I'm
0: making myself yeah. better. Yeah. Oh, okay. Isn't
1: that called exercise? Isn't exercise biohacking?
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, that's true. You're hacking your biology, whatever that means. <laughs> um, it, it, it sounds like you get hacking yourself with an axe or something. But um, to come back to the protein topic, um, with regards to leucine then, what's the importance of, of leucine within the context of uh, protein and then, so the amino acid l leucine yeah. and then and then how does that relate to quality of protein? so I know that veganism and vegetarianism is on the rise, the popularity for right. for multiple reasons and but but how does what's the importance of having sufficient amount of leucine in your diet at, at a specific sitting as well of protein feeding? And in the context, like I said, of the overall diet.
1: Right. I think, well, what's interesting is there's this idea of a, a threshold. I'm not a fan of threshold ideas, but there seems to be one that's taken hold that at each at each meal, you have to hit a certain amount of leucine. You know, it's an essential amino acid. You know, two or three grams of it at a, at a meal to to elevate muscle protein synthesis to, you know, a significant extent. And I've always wondered about that. In the sense that if if you are a, a if you eat discrete meals, you know, if you eat breakfast, lunch, dinner with a protein shake in between, you're gonna hit that threshold if you just eat a mixed meal. What would happen if you got the same person and just had them graze all day? So they eat a little bit here, it'll eat a little bit there. Let's say they're eating sixteen I'll call them feedings, because maybe they're not meals. If so they had sixteen meals or feedings a day, but the same calories, same protein, and but they didn't eat that hit that two to three gram threshold of leucine. Um, would it really be different? And, and again, that, that kind of study is infinitely hard to do. Uh, but there's a part of me that doesn't think so because at the end of the day, it's still total calories and total protein. So does it matter? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, leucine critically is, is, the, is the primary driver. It's the primary essential amino acid that's important. And that's why animal-based proteins are quote better than non-animal based because of the higher uh, leucine content. And I've never understood why, why uh, companies that sell, you know, vegetarian or vegan based proteins like soy or rice protein or pea protein, just, just add leucine. I mean, if it's just leucine, just Mm -hmm. add more leucine. I mean, and then I don't know if that'll affect the flavor profile. My guess is it does. And it makes it more expensive, but that basically makes it on par with the animal based proteins, particularly uh, the milk based proteins. So, I mean is it important? Yeah, I think in in any pragmatic sense, no one's going to eat 16 meals a day. We're probably going to eat at least 3, somewhere between 3 and 6 meals a day. And within that context, that leucine threshold is probably important. Um but I just wonder about, you know, those people who are just complete grazers, you know, they just eat a little bit all day.
0: Yeah, so I think maybe to explain to people who don't um or, or don't understand why leucine is important. This is what I kind of have compared it to. So leucine will be almost like the ignition to start muscle building. Mm -hmm. And then you have all the other essential amino acids that are are there. And without sufficient amount of leucine, you're not going to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Or or you're not going to maximize muscle building. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, um, there's interesting data that if you were to do gram for gram, the essential amino acids, which of course leucine is part of, and compare it to whole protein like whey or casein, that the essential amino acids are much better at driving muscle protein synthesis than than whole protein. Of course, the, the, the trade-off there is that EAAs or essential amino acids they tend to taste awful and they tend to be more expensive than just buying a you know a jug of milk or a tub of whey protein. But mm. gram for gram, it is in a sense better. I mean, there's interesting data. There's a Scientist out of the University of Arkansas Medical Center, uh, Arnie Ferrando, who's done some interesting work in that area. So, um, But again, you know, it's better just to do whole protein because it tastes a lot better.
0: Yeah, I think one of the people I looked up to when I first got into bodybuilding, which was over 10 years ago now, was was Lane Norton. I think I was in 17 or something like that. And that's when I first heard of this term, leucine. Um, and he, his idea was that, you, you go on to eat multiple sittings per day. You got this, uh, pr- like you mentioned, uh, b- that you're not t- really a fan of, but this leucine threshold of two to three grams of leucine mm-hmm. where you maximize hypertrophy in that meal. You have this refract- refractory period um, where you kind of need to almost let your muscle protein synthesis curve come back down to baseline mm-hmm. and then you spike it again. And in between those meals, you can actually spike it very fast and then make it come back down by having leucine or bcas just by itself and i actually used to i used to i had didn't have a job i used to spend like 80 euros <laughs> a month on on bcas and oh my I didn't god have a job it, yeah that's priorities <laughs> but yeah so um obviously things have changed then but what, what are your kind of initial thoughts or some of the the research showing that perhaps that's not really the, the best way to go by things what? even if you're looking to optimize it because obviously i was trying to biohack it there
1: wait are you talking about the leucine threshold or branch chains i'm, I'm not
0: I'm yeah not sure. so so yeah so the reason i was taking the branch chains was to get that leucine with, ah. with the idea of you need to have this threshold of three grams and then you want to have this refractory period but during that period you actually can consume branch chain amino acids or or, or um leucine to to spike it again
1: yeah i don't think you know the the utilization of, of branch chain amino acids for this purpose I, I, it's not something I'd recommend. In fact, um, for branch the use of branched-chain amino acids, the only u, the only uh, utility that I've seen for it is actually with endurance athletes, um, and that's for minimizing delayed onset muscle soreness. And why, and why would they take it? Well, let's say during a four-hour bike ride, you're not going to be drinking milk or drinking whey protein, so it's easy to consume branched-chain amino acids because it's just easier. It's much lighter. Uh, for your purposes, I mean, for bodybuilding, it's really I, you know, the brand chains, I don't think are are critically important because if you're consuming whole protein, you're getting plenty of leucine, valine, and isoleucine. Um, Now, would it hurt? You know, I always take a pragmatic approach. Is it going to hurt? No. What could it help? Yeah. Uh, If money's not an issue, you know, I always tell people, if money's not an issue, I say do everything. I mean, just do everything, (laughs) you know, but if money's an issue, and I know bodybuilders spend a ton on, on food, um, then it might be an issue. I think you're better off if... You know, if, if you don't have unlimited funds, then stick to stick to whole food proteins and some milk based protein, and, and and no need to do the uh, uh, you know single amino acids or branched chain amino acids.
0: Mm. But 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 based on what you're saying, if you actually do have a say a vegan protein, or you're a follow a vegetarian diet, or have a meal, you could actually maximize that by having um, some BCAs or yes. amino acids with that meal. Yeah.
1: Yes. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Final question for you. Um, I know that you've done some research on pr- like super high protein intakes, um, or like yes. more than what convention- conventionally was, um, you know, the, the one gram or per, per pound or 2.2 grams per kilograms. What was some of the research you, you've seen and, and what how much protein you're actually doing per per pound or per gram of body weight? And what kind of results have, did you see?
1: Yeah. In general, I think there's i <laughs> I'll use the word threshold. People love this word. There seems to be a threshold in terms of total daily intake that you need to promote lean body mass. And I think it's somewhere between 2.2 grams per kilo and 3.4 grams per kilo. Cause that seems to be, that is the range I've seen in studies I've done. Anything above 3.4 grams per kilo, probably it's not going to help. However, if you go high protein intake, it might promote the loss of fat mass. So, and for bodybuilding, obviously there's two things you want to do. Lose fat, gain muscle, lose fat, gain muscle. Um, so in that case, it is important now. We've had, uh, we've had the, the luck of following, we followed five pretty high-level bodybuilders um, for two years. And what's interesting, because these guys come to the lab all the time, what's interesting is, let's take the health part. Um, nothing happens, there's no change in liver function, kidney function, you name it. These guys, I mean, they're super healthy, super lean, you know, clean as a whistle. However, when it comes to just gaining lean mass, what I've noticed with these guys is is their lean body mass or muscle mass um, really just sort of goes up and down depending on how they're training because they're always eating a lot. They never not eat a lot. It's how they train. I mean, because a lot of these guys, you know, they sort of get sick of doing super heavy weights or high volume training or whatnot. They'll take like a few weeks off, maybe just do cardio or whatever, and then they'll get back in the gym. And they cycle their training such that it's almost like they train to, to be strong. And by training to be strong, the secondary effect is they also gain mass. Now I know there's, I know there's data to show that, you know, if you do uh, reps to failure, you know, 30 reps, to failure versus whatever, five to 10 reps, to failure sort of low rep versus high rep, uh, that you you'll gain, you know, muscle hypertrophy is equivalent.
0: Mm.
1: Well, this is <laughs> what I say to that is, okay. So you go to the gym. Why would you choose a rep range that takes three times longer to get the same effect with hypertrophy, but also you don't even get as strong? So who makes it, who does that? Who makes that decision? Well, oh, you know what? I'm going to do a lot of reps. My muscles will grow, but I won't get as strong. Versus the guy who does fewer reps, he, he still grows the same amount, but he gets stronger. Um, it's always been odd to me that anyone would pick a high rep range because it just takes longer. Why would you do that? But I guess unless you're bored, you know you're tired of the five to fifteen rep range. Um, so um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, I'm just sort of been like rambling on and on about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you I, I remember reading that you, in, in the research where you do really high protein, and um, it did increase muscle mass more. But they actually had better body composition; they lost yes. more more fat mass. And you you touched on that. Is there any practical applications? Uh, to do that, they're actually doing that. And what were they Do you remember the amounts of protein that they were consuming?
1: Yeah, I would. Rec- yeah, based on the data we've collected, I'd say the, I'd say a good goal would be three grams per kilo, which is you know you you got to work at that that amount. It's not it doesn't come easy. So three grams per kilo, um, that seems to be sort of a nice. Well, it's actually a lot, but it's enough that it might also help body composition in terms of lowering body fat mass. Um, so you know the two things going on. You'll gain. You're more apt to gain lean mass. Obviously, training has to change, um, and you're also more apt to lose fat mass.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's pretty interesting. And would that be in the context of a, a surplus or a deficit, or, or would would you recommend the same for both?
1: All all of these studies, uh, they were they were they were in the uh, caloric uh, either in, in in balance or they were in the surplus. None of these guys were in a deficit. So um, so either caloric balance or uh, or a surplus
0: yeah that's pretty interesting i just did some quick maths that works out at around 1.36 1. 1.4 grams per pound which yes. is probably in the high end um but definitely achievable if you're if you're a bodybuilder so thanks so much jose for coming on um sure. where can people find more information about uh what you're doing and what are you currently doing at the moment is there anything particular interesting that you're working on yes you mention something about neuroscience and sport yeah what i'd like
1: what i'd like to tell your audience is um i'm helping organize two conferences there's a uh, The ISSN, International Society Sports Nutrition Conference, it's in Daytona Beach, Florida. That's September 10th to the 12th. And then the uh, Society for Neurosports, this is the sports neuroscience organization I co-founded. That is also in Deerfield Beach, Florida. We like Florida, people love the beach. That is uh, November 13 and 14. So um, if you guys love the beach, hey, Come to one of these conferences because the venue is beautiful. I mean, you get to look at the ocean. You get to swim in the ocean. The water here is actually quite nice. It's not cold at all. You can actually jump in it and not freeze to death. So unlike the West Coast of the United States where (laughs) water in California is crazy cold, it's like, who the hell swims in this stuff? (laughs) So so come to that. The website for ISSN is ISSN.net. And the website for the Neurosports Conference is Neurosports.net. So ISSN.net, Neurosports.net
0: net awesome that sounds awesome and uh you're you're really tempting me <laughs> to get away from this crappy weather hey i'm, I'm so telling
1: well, you but... you know get a good tan yeah. hey you gotta get your vitamin d come on
0: vitamin <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm pale skin i can <laughs> step outside and you know I, in, inside lights will give me enough vitamin d <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. all right thanks so much for coming on
1: all right thanks adam appreciate it you have a great night
0: all right so i hope you enjoyed that show and if you want to find more about Jose just check the show notes out you can find all his social media links and his website and links to the conference that he talked about if you can make it out to sunny Florida you can also reach me you can also find my social media links and contact me if you have any questions regarding this and finally again I want to mention that 10-day natural bodybuilding fast track if you want to join that click the link it's in the description and I look forward to chatting you to you in the next episode